Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Ladies Who London podcast. I'm Emily Dell. And I'm Alex Lacey and we are Qualified London Blue Badge Tourist Guides. Each week we bring to you some of the best bits of London. We talk about our favourite people, places and events with a bit of information, a lot of laughs and a whole lot of fun. We can be found on Instagram at Ladies Who London Podcast and on our websites, guideemily.com and alexlacey.com as well, ladieswholondon.com for more information about the podcast and the show notes and all that goes along with it. And Emily was making fantastic, very sort of politician y arm movements through all of that. It was a lot of fun. Did you like that? Really enjoyed it. That was it. just for you. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. How are you, lovey? I'm all right. I'm okay. Happy I think podcast my voice day. is starting to go. Yes, have oh. a podcast day. <laughs> Sorry, I don't want to bring it on a downer. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray! Oh, oh, no, well, I'm what have you done to I just I've worked past few days and I just oh. haven't spoken as much spoken as much as I have. So I'm just yeah getting a bit husky. It's exhausting working, isn't it? It really is. Like, you go from such a long time of not, you know, delivering any information apart from obviously, you know, us having a chat once a week. And yeah. And it's suddenly crazy. got busy. It has, Which is hasn't great. it? Which is great. Tourism is coming back. Yeah. It is. Mm. It's back, mm. baby. It's back, baby. How's your week been? Yeah, really good. What have I done? Um, oh, I was in Paris last week, wasn't I? Um, oh, you were, yes. I was. That was great fun. Wait, hang on, have I, have I chatted to you since then? No, I haven't, have I? I don't know. Yes. Yes, yes we, we did the pod. I can't even... <laughs> you came back before the last pod. Did I? I don't even know anymore. Time Pretty has no sure. meaning. <laughs> Pretty sure you did. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, right. I can't be 100%. I I'm but... right. What have I done in the last week? Though? I don't even know. I've probably just worked. I can't even think. I'm with a lovely family at the moment for four days um, from America. Mm. And we're going down um, uh, tomorrow. We're heading down to Bath to overnight down there and do loads of stuff en route and spend time in Bath. That was so lovely. And yeah, oh. it's really nice. So I'm loving being back working. But it is exhausting. I'd forgotten how, how tiring it was. Guiding is yeah. tiring, man. It is tiring. <laughs> and I've definitely got my steps in. Goodness me. 
Oh, the family um, I'm with at the moment on the first day, the uh, um, the, the lovely daughter, um, Gabby, she 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 said, we walked 22,000 steps yesterday. Can we walk less today? And I was like, yeah, we totally can. <laughs> She'd done a day with one of <laughs> our colleagues, Katie. And, uh, and, uh, and Katie, I think, had walked her into the ground. So she's a bit like, oh, can I sit down for a bit? I'm like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but there we go. There we um, go. Now, I have a little uh, apology to make first off. Oh, we uh, launched okay. our Easter um, competition last week and then I completely forgot to put it on the website. So, so you will naughty. find it on the website now. You can go and enter the podcast. We've also had an inquiry from someone saying, can we? I enter on behalf of somebody else? I mean, sure. If you, if you don't want chocolate for yourself, fine. That's okay. Uh, but do go onto the website, ladieswholondon.com and enter the competition and you could either win yourself a kilo of chocolate or tickets to the um the chocolate hunt at either hampton court palace or kensington palace courtesy of uh, the lovely lint chocolates um and yeah you can kind of pick to enter for both or one of them or whatever whatever you fancy um, but i promise and we want to hear we want to hear about your um easter traditions your yeah. love of easter what do you love about easter what is it about it best easter memories um, that kind of thing yeah best easter memories exactly Great. Any shout-outs, Emily? Well, yeah, actually. We've had uh, quite a few lovely messages. We had one from Amanda Rock. Um, and, you know, we were talking about uh, women, International Women's Month. Yeah. And she said, my office, Place of Science, is showing a Woman of Science slideshow in the lobby for Women's oh. History Month. And she says, look who popped up. And she sent a lovely little picture of Ada Lovelace. Yay! Yeah. how fabulous is that oh that's um, what a lovely thing to do where's it that where's, really is. where's that office can we go and pop by is it in london so look. she works um she's a, a sample coordinator her company is called kbi it's a bio pharma company oh my goodness um, i don't understand that but that sounds <laughs> it sounds fantastic though she actually said that um, she was actually impressed with their slideshow last month for Black History Month. Oh! So this company is fantastic. Loving it. Um, yeah, absolutely brilliant. Oh, well, congratulations um, to that company. Yeah. We, um, so you mentioned that somebody wanted to uh, put somebody else's name in for this gigantic mm. chocolate bunny. And uh, somebody who said this was a young lady called Marae, and she lives in Australia. We have listeners in Australia. <laughs> That's mad. I love it. I love it. How exciting. I asked her what her favourite episodes were and she said the Halloween special and also Angela Burdett Coots. Yes, Angela Burdett Coots. Yes. Yeah. I, I said a little um, note. I was in the Abbey today, actually, and uh, I didn't. I didn't talk about because we we didn't have a huge amount of time in there. But I gave her a little hello as as I as I went out. Perfect. Nice. Yeah. Um, did you also say a hi to Afra Ben? Oh, I didn't walk past Afra Ben on this occasion, ah, but yes, okay. uh, I, I did think okay. as we were kind of going up, I was like, oh, I should say hi to Afra, but yeah, I didn't go past her. Um, but I actually want to say hi to someone who uh, messaged me this week, Susie. And Susie, genuinely, thank you so much for your lovely offer. She messaged me, um, well, it was it was last week now, back end of last week on Friday, and said that she had a friend who couldn't make it to the theatre. And did I want to come uh, in her place? She said, I love the podcast and her pals dropped out. So um, can you can have it as for free as a thank you for the pod. And it was so such a lovely offer. And I really wish I could have taken it. Um, that day was just a bit crazy and I couldn't make it happen. But thank you so much for for thinking of me and and uh and offering me a little seat at the theatre which you know i love theatre so uh 
I've actually just looked at my message requests. And she's in there. And I've actually, yes, oh, Susie. I've Emily. Because I so did say terrible. I can't do it, but try Emily. Um, oh my god! Because Alex, before we was recording this, Alex told me about this, Susie, and I and and she said, "Oh, maybe you've got a message." And I was like, "I haven't got a message." Susie hasn't got in contact with me. She said, oh, well, you know, fine, whatever. <laughs> She's not into me. And I'm so sorry. In your just face, Emily. Your message. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry, my darling. Please do not let this put you off asking me in the future. <laughs> I mean, it will, obviously. Oh, Gosh, how oh. terrible. I've suddenly noticed I've got messages that I haven't opened. God. Um, Enough of your admin on the podcast. Come on. <laughs> Sorry. So we mentioned Afro Ben just briefly. Yeah. There. Uh, you gave a fantastic. Um, I was going to say rendition, if that's the right word. A rendition of her life. Afro Ben. Performing monkey. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I really love Afro Ben. I think her story is really fascinating, and um, uh, you know, and again, it, it's this thing of 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 like we said with Lara. Uh, no, hang on. <laughs> that's coming up um you know that thing of, of, of talking about people that we don't know about quite so much and i love it and afro ben was one of them and it was nice to get to know her a little bit um i feel like i've got even more friends in the Abbey every time i go it's so nice yes well just you saying you know i went in and you know waved at angela it is nice isn't <laughs> oh, it? Because you feel, <laughs> you're right Ange. um you feel more connected even though they've passed over you know a little bit more about their lives yeah. and you kind of take their stories around with you so i love it i get bored about talking about kings and queens because everyone talks about them let's talk yeah. about other people um so Definitely. our podcast pedestal from last week mm. i went for her story orinoco which was um a story that was very much used within the abolition movement because she was talking about this um uh, black prince who she well possibly based on somebody that she'd actually met in Suriname specifically and she sort of put herself as the narrator of the story and it was a really you know quite a powerful story about this guy and it was used in the fight against uh, slavery in in later years admittedly but still quite a, a seminal work and the thing that she's most most known for really um you didn't go for that you went for something else Ah, uh, yeah, so I went for um, debtor's prison when she mm. was placed in debtor's prison because I felt that that kind of changed the pathway and she started to focus on her writing. Um, After that so, sneaky yeah. king sent her there. I know. Charlie. King Charles II. What a Goodness rotter. Me. What a rotter. What so, a rotter. Um, so, no, uh, it's, it's, it's not as close as I thought it might be this week. Oh. Um, it is 39 to 61%. Who do you reckon's got it? Look, at you got a little, you've got your face <laughs> on that thinks that you've won it. I can see your sneaky little face. <laughs> Only because on mine, I won it by a landslide. Uh, yeah, you did. You won it on the... <laughs> ah, 61%. Won so you're it. storming oh, ahead now. I God. need to get a better I am pick. 6 4. 6 4. Wow. I'm not happy with that. <laughs> Wow. I'm going to throw that an Emily a... Wobbler like you did last year. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so impressed with myself. <laughs> I mean, it's not me. It's people voting. It's, it's you Well, it was there. a good choice. When you came up with that, I thought, actually, that's, that's a pretty good choice. Oh, um, so there we go. So lovely. you are, you, it's Thank now 6-4 to you. Brilliant. And I'm pretending um, to take it graciously. <laughs> 
you are. You do take it very graciously. Um, Outwardly, wow. maybe. Okay, uh, I don't know what to say. <laughs> now, this um, week we have a, we have a little bit... Of, oh, yes, go oh. on. Yeah, so this week we have a little bit of a change to our, let's say, planned programming. And it's very simply for the fact that... Um, we have a a guest this week. We had planned to have a chat to her and, and broadcast it next week. Um, but Emily and I have run out of a little bit of time this week. So actually, we brought this one up. Um, so you, what was your pick uh, last week when we spun the wheel? You, you decided you were going to pick... So my pick was Barbara Hepworth. Which, who I love. And we're going to talk about her next week. So don't panic. We are still going to do that. But Emily and I were just a bit snowed under with stuff. So we've moved up the uh, the, the chat with um, a really fascinating lady. And it's somebody that, for those of you who watched Global Tea Break way back at the start of lockdown um, in uh, 20, 2020, uh, may have watched this episode. It was with um, a lady called Lara Maitland, who is a mudlarker. And she has a couple of books out. And she is a fascinating lady. So... Rather sweetly, she gave us some of her time this week and came to have a chat with us all about mudlarking. So we're now going to play that interview for you for this week's podcast. Enjoy. Take it away, Lara. Now, folks, we have a very exciting guest for you. We have author and mudlark, Lara Maglum. Hello, Lara. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Hello. Hello. Oh, we are so excited. (laughs) And you've actually spoke to Alex previously when Alex used to do her global tea break, haven't you? I did. That's how I met Alex, yes, through Tinternet um, <laughs> and the global tea break. And then I saw you. you. We were just talking about it, weren't we? You shouted at me from your balcony. I know. I just couldn't miss the opportunity. Emily does so this. She, she, to... she does shout at people from the balcony. You know, it's usually pretty blue. But so I think you got away lightly, Lara. <laughs> well, I have to say, it does intrigue me when I look down and I see people sifting through the mud. And I just recognised you from literally the day after you spoke to Alex. And I just thought, oh, my God, I'm going to have to just <laughs> shout at you. <laughs> I can't remember what I said, but I remember you looked up and I got very excited. <laughs> you do that to me. It's a bit weird. Sometimes they'll do it to me on Millennium Bridge. You know, they'll sort of do a double take and go, you're the mudlark. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I do get it occasionally. So, right, uh, yes. So, Laura, we're saying the word mudlark, and uh, a lot of people listening might not know what a mudlark is. So, can you explain what 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 does it entail being a mudlark? Where does it kind of come from? What's the how? What got you into it? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the term mudlark goes way back. Um, it was back in the the end of the eighteen hundreds. It was the first time it was actually written down, and uh, it referred to the sort of the lowest of the low, the um, one of the criminal gangs. It was preying on the West India ships uh, that were lying uh, at anchor around your neck of the woods, sort of whopping rather high, waiting to unload their very precious cargoes. And there were all these criminal gangs that would prey on them and steal from them. So there were the people who would break on break into the ships and they'd throw these bladders of rum and packets of sugar and spices overboard into the mud. And the mudlarks were the ones that were scavenging around looking really for anything they could sell or, or move on. And they'd pick them up and they'd take them off to the taverns in Rotherhithe and Black and uh, whopping to uh, then fence these goods off into the black market. So they've always been the lowest of the low. Fast forward to the mid um, 1800s and the social commentators of the time are really writing very, very beautifully and very eloquently about these 
um, these poor creatures, really, who uh, waded around in the mud looking for anything they could use, anything they could sell, coal, wood, rope, rags, bottles, anything, into the great recycling markets of London, just to keep themselves out of the workhouse. They were the poorest of the poor. They were children, old people, the people on the very edges of society. It was a dreadful way to earn a living because at the time, the river was really just a moving cesspit. So they were wading around in that, looking for anything. So fast forward again, and modern mudlarks, which is what I am, we are really just um, searchers, history hunters, searchers for uh, the past, because the river has been a rubbish dump for 2,000 years or more. And in the river is all these little tantalizing pieces of history, these little fragments. And when the river goes down, because the, river, the, tide, the Thames is tidal, um, in central London, and it goes out twice a day, and you can get down onto the riverbed, and you can start looking for all these objects that people threw away and lost, and uh, um, just chucked into the river. And they all these little tiny things tell the story of London, and they tell the story of just the ordinary people, the people who've been forgotten, the people who didn't make it into the history books or get statues or or streets named after them, the people who've been forgotten, like you and me, really. And um, and it's fascinating. You never know what you're going to find next. And those are the kind of people that we love chatting about on the podcast is the, the unsung people of London, the people that have made London what it is. And it's it's really fascinating. So it's that kind of thing, that classic thing of one man's trash is another man's treasure, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, you're never going to get rich mudlarking, really. You might occasionally find a nice, you know, a really nice bit. But, you know, I don't go down there to make money. It's not it, it's treasure of a different sort. It's not treasure for, 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 for selling because you can't actually sell the things that you find. They don't belong to you. They belong to the Port of London Authority who own the, the uh, foreshore. Um, so, so, yes, I suppose it is. You are sifting through ancient rubbish. Yeah. Gosh, and I don't know about you, Alex, but whenever I tell, you know, my clients, if you're taking someone on a tour, that the river is a tidal river, yeah. it sometimes shocks people. <laughs> yeah. And when you do see that area of the shore and you say, you know, in a couple of hours, that's going to be completely swallowed by the water, it's quite fascinating. And there are some areas where you see this huge uh, shoreline. I mean, where is there anywhere in particular that you like to go, Lara? I mean, I... There's 160 kilometres of tidal Thames mm. uh, from Teddington, where the lock is, out to the estuary. Uh, you are with a permit. You need a permit to mudlark from the Port mm. of London Authority. Uh, you're allowed to mudlark um, up to the uh, Thames barrier. Um, and, uh, you know, there's lots mm. of different places I go, actually. Um, you know, it depends what mood I'm in, because obviously <laughs> central London is here. If I don't want to speak to anyone, I and go out your way uh, to Rotherhide. You know, there's, there's, you never really meet anyone else. Shouting at you from the balcony. Yeah, you're like, oh god, I've come out here for a bit of peace for heaven's sake, and I'm like, oi, oi. I lived in Greenwich for the, uh, for 20 years. Uh, you know, Greenwich is really important. I I live right by the river, so you know, I know Greenwich very well. Uh, so you know, it depends. It depends what mood I'm in, where I can go. But each part of the river has a very definite character. That's what I love about the river. It's, you know, like you say, it changes twice a day completely. It's, it's a completely different river twice a day, but it's constantly moving. And every little section has its own character and its own history as well. And of course, down mm. by Greenwich, so we, we've chatted quite a bit about Greenwich on the podcast with a variety of different people. But um you know, that, that was a really royal area. We had the, you know, Henry VIII's Tudor Palace there. And, and that's kind of protected, isn't it, that area, a little bit for, for mudlarking because it is so 
kind of key historically but then of course you've got the dockyards as you come higher and then you've got the industry of central london is there any find that you you've found that you you think this is my sort of my my the best thing i've ever found or the thing that is maybe the most sort of um i don't know indicative of london as a as a city what have you found that you that's made you go on yeah this i couldn't have found this anywhere else uh gosh um well I mean, I, I should say that actually there are protected areas, and you're right that a Greenwich, part of Greenwich is protected because it's it's so important. There's a there's a Tudor jetty that's washing away actually at the moment down there, um, and Queenhithe Dock is another protected area where you're not nobody is allowed to mudlark, and it's really important. It's as protected as Stonehenge, and it's really really important to mudlark responsibly, not to take bags and bags of stuff away. You don't need bags and bags of pottery and clay pipes. You know, just take what you need, um, and and respect for sure you know really respect it it's we're so lucky to have it um and 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 obey the fact that we're not allowed to go in certain areas and you can get your maps with your with your uh with your permit the maps come so they'll tell you where you can and can't go um as for finding objects of this uniquely london um gosh i mean london was a huge i mean it was a port for the world so you find objects that that you know connect london with the world i think that's what fascinates me uh, that you can find a in a 16th century Spanish coin, um, which I found in Rotherhithe actually, which oh, tells wow. the story of the ships that came oh. and moored um, a whaleboat, part of a whaleboat, up on the Rotherhithe Peninsula because Greenland Dock was where the Greenland whaling ships yeah. were stationed, where they brought the blubber back, and there were these great big awful boiling houses belching out the stinking smoke from there. And they use the bones from the whales sometimes to repair ships when they're out at sea because they would have had wood. So if they had some whale bones on board and they had a snapped, snap mast or they had something broken, I don't know much about ships, uh, they'd use a, a whale bone. So I found a great big whale bone out there. Wow. Um, so it's things that connect you to the certain parts of the foreshore. I found um, a pirate cob coin from uh, South America and I found wow. that in Whopping. Now, Wapping is where they hung the pirates out at yeah, the yeah. So, you know, when you find things like that and you think this could actually have been dropped, probably wasn't, by a pirate, you do, it just gives you that hands-on, you know, hands-on history. It's like reaching back through time and shaking hands with these people. Um, the most evocative things I find, I find, are shoes because, you know, I've got a, yes. a Tudor shoe. Um, and that's 500 years old. And it's been perfectly preserved in the Thames mud because the Thames mud's anaerobic. So you don't get any oxygen. And so organic material doesn't break down in the same way that it would break down in a field. <clears throat> so you can pull a shoe that's 500 years old out of the mud as perfect as the day it fell in with the little lines across the top, the little imprints of the toes and the heel at the back. Wow. And I found this child's shoe and it was it just brought the you know hairs up on the back of my neck because it just was this can incredible connection with history and one of the things that i find so incredible about mudlarker when you say that a tudor shoe it's been there for the best part of 500 years they were the last person to touch it and you were the first person and i think Mm. that it's not that you know there are obviously artifacts in museums that go through different hands and people see it and touch it throughout years nobody has touched it since that child you know throwing in and getting a spank of their mother for having chucked their shoe away and then 500 years later you are the next person to touch that that for me is quite kind of it's quite visceral 
Yeah, I mean, I was talking to someone, funnily enough, about that today and explaining that it's, uh, you know, it is that magical moment that you touch something and you know that nobody has, you know, you find something Roman and you pick it up and you know nobody's touched that since the last Roman that dropped it or lost it is the most incredible feeling. And it's not the same collecting things, buying things in auction or buying things from antique shops because it, they've been through so many hands. They're so far removed from that chain of events that got it to, to that spot and it's so rare to be able to be the first person to touch these yeah. objects and i think you know from talking to metal detectorists that's the buzz that a lot of them get as well um i don't metal detect i don't have metal detect everything i find is just lying on the surface um but yeah it's that it's that magical magical moment that you, you, you touch it and uh, and sometimes i can be very possessive of that moment as well because i i i find things i don't let other people touch them Wow. Um, because I don't want people to sort of spoil the, you know, sort of break the spell, I suppose. Yeah, the special bond that you've made with that particular object. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's using your imagination, I guess, and kind of creating those stories with that little girl. And like even with the pirate, it's, yeah, yeah it's fabulous. You know, because as long as you know what something is, mm. you can make up anything. Nobody can say you're wrong. Mm. Nobody knows. And there is this sort of, I think I'm not an archaeologist, I'm not a historian, and I think sometimes when you are an artist or a historian, you're almost constrained by your your trade, your, your academic mind. You're constrained by that, whereas I'm not. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I've always worked with words, and so I have that freedom to, without any, I don't have to worry about doing that. I have that freedom just to create around these objects, which is, which is amazing and wonderful. Mm. Can you say that you use words? You have got a couple of books, haven't you? I have. I've got two books. My first book is called Mudlarking, Lost and Found on the River Thames, uh, which was a Sunday Times bestseller. Congratulations. And, uh, <laughs> and it also won the Independent um, Bookshop Award uh, for when it came out. Wow. Uh, and it's done really well. It's been really, really popular. And then last year, my second book came out, which is an illustrated guide to larking which is a term that I have um, coined, I have sort of appropriated to cover, <laughs> cover everything from beachcombing, mudlarking, field walking, and even house and garden marking, because we're so lucky in this country that we live on top of so much history mm. that you can go out into your garden, dig up a potato, and you're just as likely to dig up a beautiful pottery shard or even a coin or some part of history because there's so much of it. And it is constantly appearing and you really just got to keep your eyes open to spot these little things that are around. And, you know, it, it goes back to why I do this. And I do this to escape. And it's so, I hate using the word mindfulness because it's so overused and a bit yeah. naff. Um, it's a form of meditation for me. Um, just being able to escape, getting away from the kids and my problems and work and everything else, just for a few hours, just to look for something and nothing. And uh, if funny. I come home with nothing, uh, one of the things just... that I remember the most from your book, actually, is your description very early on in the book of you coming into London on the train and like seeing London around you kind of doing its thing and you knowing that you're going to your happy place, which is on the river. And that you that that kind of stuck with me. It was that lovely. I think the image of you kind of coming in through London Bridge, wasn't it, on the train as you're going up? And oh, it was it was fantastic. And and one of the things that I remember most from your book about the things that you found that really stuck with me 
was the printing letters. Now that is, I find that incredibly fascinating. Can you tell us a bit more about the letters from the printing press that you find? And that is almost a bit of a kind of a coveted find amongst mudlarkers, isn't it? It is. It's, um, yeah, everyone loves the Dove's type story because it's it's just so bonkers. Um, so, so basically the river, and, and still even today, people throw things into the river that they don't want, things they want to get rid of, things they, they don't want other people to find or see, and, and things they want out of their lives. You know, it's a, it's a place where people throw their wedding rings, engagement. We find quite a lot of wedding engagement rings under the bridges. Oh. I love letters torn up, photographs. Spells, curses, all, all sorts wow. of things. Spells. That, that got Emily's attention. <laughs> um, but this goes back to the um, uh, turn of the 20th century and uh, to the arts and crafts movement. And there were two men. There was Cobden Sanson and Emery Walker. And they were friends and they decided to, um, they wanted to create the most perfect typeface, the most perfect fonts that they could create and the arts and crafts movement was all about creating things by hand and doing things perfectly and a, a return to that sort of aesthetic and so they set up a printing press in Hammersmith they called it the Doves printing press because it was just a couple of doors down from the famous Doves um, pub which is right on the river yeah and they invented this really very if you're into type and or publishing or anything like that I've worked in publishing forever I love it. It it is the, it is a very beautiful type. It's it, it's just something lovely about it. It's that it's that moment of change when type went from really quite sort of gothic and curly into something more pared down, simple and modern. Um, and so they created this lovely type. Hobden Sanderson was the creative genius behind it. Emery Walker was more of a businessman. And so they started printing these books by hand with their press. They printed the Bible and the works of Shakespeare. Hobbes and Sanderson would only have the most perfect works printed in his perfect type, which he's wow. called. That's, that's very sort of, um, yeah. I guess, territorial, isn't it, really? Very territorial. He wouldn't. He didn't want it commercialised at all. It was the most perfect thing he'd ever produced. He was obsessed with it. Anyway, the two men fell out eventually. And... Um, uh, they went, started taking, uh, there was a lawsuit taken out. They were, you know, they were going to court over it. Emery Walker wanted half of it. He was going to use it commercially. Cobden Sanderson couldn't bear the thought of that happening. So this little old man, over the course of six months in 1916, dumped a ton of lead type into the river at Hammersmith mm. to get rid of it so that nobody could ever use it ever again. The only pieces that were left were some pieces that Emery Walker had set um, a Christmas card to his wife in and it just wasn't enough to recreate the whole thing so it was gone lost lost forever um, now Emery Walker Cobbs uh, um, and Sanson died they put his ashes into an, a niche at the end of his garden that overlooked the river and in 1928 there was a massive flood and it washed his ashes away so oh, wow. his ashes finally joined the type in the Thames and nobody knew where it was nobody was really that bothered about it until a man came along um, called Rob Green and he's a typographer and he decided he wanted to use Dove's Press for this project he had going on. So he wanted to recreate it digitally. So he bought some, some ephemera, some typed pieces, and he was trying to recreate it from that. But when you take metal type and you press it into soft paper, it creates a sort of fuzz around it. It wasn't precise enough to be able to no. recreate it digitally. So he decided he was going to work out where he'd, where Cobbs and Sanson had thrown all this type and go and find enough to recreate it. And now Cobbs Sanson had written all these diaries and they are insane. You can read them. He was going mad, basically. He was going mad, but he'd written 
he described where he'd thrown them in and it was hidden in a little niche and he had his back to the bindery and his his adversary and um he, he was on the so just on the brow of a hill so he could see people coming both ways and he described how he was throwing these packets in and he nearly hit a boat at one point um so he left behind big clues and so rob spoke to the pla he got his license and the pla said if he found any they'd send in divers so he went down and the first time i think he found four pieces Wow. And, and the PLA's they're, they're, they're tiny, them. aren't they? They're not, they're not really big at all. They're minuscule. Absolutely tiny, not much bigger than a matchstick. And the um, and so the PLA sent divers in and they searched, fingerprint, fingertip searching, and I think they found something like 120 pieces. Oh, wow. Not the whole, not the whole lot, but you think 120 pieces out of a, a ton of this stuff. That's all they found. Gosh. Um, and but it was just enough for Rob to be able to recreate it. And so um we tried to set the book in it, and it was really hard to read when you have a whole page. It just proved really difficult to read. I think it needs to be spaced out so far that it wouldn't have been practical. Right. And so we, we set the, um, the quotes at the beginning of each chapter and the front page in doves. And uh, so I interviewed Rob for the book, and he let slip a couple of um, clues about where it might be. So I went down there to have a look. <laughs> I found two- Willie's on, out the door. <laughs> I got an F and I got a comma. And as far as I know, the comma is the only one in existence. So I've got my little um, and I'm very pleased with that. So it's it's a brilliant story. It really is. You know, where that ton of lead types gone is anyone's guess. But the Hammersmith, as you probably know, is is the most unstable bridge of the London bridges. Mm. And it's been bombed twice. And every time they try and fix it, they pour more concrete down into um, into the pilings. And so I think it's probably most of it's just been encased in concrete. And is, is Hammersmith the only place that mudlarkers have ever found it? Has it ever washed down river a little bit more or, you know, with the time? No, it's just in Hammersmith. It hasn't gone far. Yeah. Gosh. Well, I guess it's um, actually in thank, thanks to the uh, the mud that doesn't have, as you say, what did you call it? The ano- anaerobic. Anaerobic. Yeah, yeah anaerobic mud. But it, it's not it's not made of, me- it's not made of um, iron, so it hasn't rusted. Wow. So it's quite well preserved. But yeah, stuff doesn't move around in the in the river that much. It mm. tends to stay where it was dumped. So have you only ever found those two pieces or have you found more since then? I haven't gone back. I don't really feel I need to go back, to be honest. I felt I feel like I've ticked that box and I've got my bit of doves. I don't need any more. I, mean, I don't need yeah, You've got your comma. I've got my comma. I'm happy with that. Um, you know, it's, it's a good story. And I don't live up that way. It's hard for me to get west. So I don't actually mudlark west that often. So. And have have they managed to create the entire alphabet and all of the, you know, punctuation stuff? Have, has enough been found to be able to do that? Yes, um, it was never done. An italic was never done. Okay. Um, and so I think Rob's creating an, an italic or has has or is or is going to create an italic. You can buy it. You can buy doves. Type. I've got it on my computer. Oh, so you can, you can buy it from font places. Yeah, I just can't use it very well. <laughs> It just looked great as a book, but uh, yeah, it is very beautiful. Wow. And Lara, if we came into your home, would we see, you know, things that you found? Emily's angling for an invite here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, if, when we come over for a cup of tea, (laughs) what am I going to notice first? (laughs) Well, you you know, that's why do you think I've got the background fuzzed out? (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? I'm like, I'm trying to have a little look and I can't see anything. She's so nosy. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm like, orders, you know, there's piles of it. It's going to collapse on me. And so, uh, do you know what? I'm very aware that I don't want to become one of those crazy ladies that can't get up the stairs. And, you know, they find one day completely killed by my stuff. <laughs> my eyeballs, you know, clay so, pipes all over you. By clay pipe. Um, <laughs> so no, I am. I cre- I curate my collection very carefully. Like I said before, you know, how many bits of pottery do you need? How many clay pipes do you need? You know, I I don't take everything. I take a lot back. I give a lot away. I keep um, good examples, and there are some things that I do collect multiple things of. And uh, but mostly I just keep a good example, one example of, of each thing. Um, and uh, I've got a uh, I've got a printer's chest. It's got 18 drawers, which is perfect because most of the stuff I bring back is apart from the giant whalebone is really small. So um, so yeah, so it, it does all just fit in, fit in quite nicely. And Emily did okay. mention the clay pipes there, and clay pipes are the the thing that when mudlarkers start out, that's one of the first things you find, isn't it? Um, and I know, I know for a fact that you have more than one clay pipe. <laughs> I do, I do have right. I do have a soft spot for clay pipes. Uh, they, uh, uh, yeah, I do like clay pipes. But there again, you know, still, you know, I could take a lot more home than I do. I don't. Um, yes, how, there are how, three... do, how do clay pipes come to be in the river? Because that's not something that a lot of people would think you know you could imagine the odd one thrown in but they are the thing that most people find when they start out so why are there just quite so many in the river yes i mean they are i mean there are three things the three p's basically when you first start out are pins pipes and pottery those are the things you're most likely to find so pipes um walter Raleigh brought um tobacco back at the end of the 16th century from the new world and it caught on it became very fashionable everybody wanted to do it um but it was expensive and so the very early clay pipes have tiny, tiny bowls. And as it got more fashionable, as demand grew, they grew more in America. They imported more. The price went down. And pretty soon, everybody was smoking, literally everyone was smoking, men, women, children. Uh, they thought it was good for you. They thought it kept away the dangerous miasmas, you know, as they were burying people in the plague pits. They were puffing away on their pipes because they thought it would stop them from getting it. Um, and these clay pipes, they're, they're quite fragile um they do break fairly easily so once they got it, it's a bit of a myth that they were smoked once and thrown away you know like cigarette ends uh it wasn't like that because you know our ancestors were anything but uh, as, as throwaway as we are they use things you know, had to pay for them it worked hard for them everything's handmade and they use things until they broke and when they got too short for a cool smoke they became known as nose warmers because they started burning <laughs> then they would have thrown them away um a lot of them got dropped out of pockets um i'm sure there were some some wastrel who threw things away um some of them got you know thrown in the river um and there there are written written, uh records of the the streets around Covent garden being inches thick with clay pipes um and it simply was because everybody was smoking and it was cheap it became very very cheap you'd buy your clay pipe packed with tobacco in the tavern and puff away on it um and um and so we do find huge numbers of them in certain parts of, of the river i was that i was down there yesterday i found three complete ones wow. um mid, mid 1700s so you can date them really easily as well in my new book there is a dating chart um because you date them by uh, by the size and the shape and the style of them. So they're really easy to date so they're really fun things to collect and fun things to look out for 
And, um, and what a lot of people will find is the, the stems. That'll be the first thing, because yes. you can yeah. go down and find the little white stems. Every, I mean, uh, it's funny, because you first go down and you think there's nothing there, and then you look, and the minute you get your eye in, they're everywhere. And that's because they would have been snapping them off, wouldn't they, as they sort of use them? Is that is that how they used to? No, not really. Um, if they were working and they wanted to have the clay pipe in their, in, their, in their mouth, they might have snapped it down to make it shorter, turn it into a cutty, um, and then clumped it between their teeth. They found... Um, skulls of, of smokers with little holes where where they had their clay pipe constantly between no. their teeth it's just this hole wow yeah. really <gasps> and uh and so really they just they just broke as they went you know you can imagine if you just accidentally dropped it it would probably break yeah and bits would break off as you know just they just break and also they they bunged up with tar um so maybe if you broke off a little bit you could keep it going for a bit longer yeah i'm not a smoker i don't know <laughs> me neither oh. pass <laughs> but you mentioned so how oh, oh, sorry, let's go for it um so I'll you mentioned skulls didn't you um lara and and that is something so i often when i talk about mudlarking with my guests and they say oh do people ever find human bones and i said yeah that has been, happened and you did actually find a human skull on the riverfront oh. didn't you i did yes uh i mean you do it, it, it goes without saying, really, there's lots of human remains in the river. People have been falling in, jumping in, being pushed in. Um, you, there's been battles, they've, uh, graves have eroded. So there are human human remains. You'll find a lot of bones on foreshore. 99.99999% mm. of them are animal bones because it's just rubbish. It's domestic waste. So you can see it's, you know, cow ribs and, and horse, uh, horse sort of legs and things like that. In amongst them, sometimes people find bits of, of human bones. If you find a, a, a human remains, you obviously have to report it to the police. Mm. Um, I was mudlarking with a friend and we found a skull um, uh, in an area that was, is well known for the prison ships, the 18th, oh. um, 18th 19th century uh, prison ships, which is where they put prisoners. They basically had such such hard rules that they filled the prisons up so you you could be um sentenced to death for really quite what we would see as fairly minor things you could be transported to australia for stealing a loaf of bread for feeding you to feed your family you know it was it was it, it, they were they were being really hard on people and so they created these prison ships they were ex uh, warships they took down the mast they put bars on the on the windows and they put all these people men and women on these ships and they moored them out in the middle of the river um, because they couldn't escape from them even if they tried and if they did often they were moored in very marshy areas there was nowhere for them to go so if you know magwitch in um yeah, you know that Dickens famously wrote about. He was he'd escaped from one of those awful ships, and he had to crawl through the marshes. You know, there was nothing nearby for them to even get to. Um, so they, if they survived being on the prison ships, because they were incredibly brutal, terrible places, then they had to survive the, the being transported to Tasmania or, or Australia or or even the Caribbean. Um, it really was quite awful. They also kept uh, Napoleonic prisoners of war on these ships just by by chattel. They built chattel docks oh. and, and they kept them on on board these ships. Didn't know that, gosh. Now they were terrible places. There um, and when people died, they were just rowed to the nearest bit of marshland, the nearest area, and buried in a shallow grave and forgotten about. Now um, the, the water levels are rising. They're going up by about a hundred foot a year, um, and uh, with rising water levels. 
these graves are starting to erode and the bones are falling out onto the foreshore. There's a very famous um, uh, island called Dead Man's Island out in Medway and uh, there's loads of bones there. That was uh, the um, uh, quarantine ships were, were moored nearby as well. So they'd have to moor up if they had an infectious disease until it disappeared or everyone died um, before they were allowed up into, into the port of London. So there's... Uh, um, I should say you're not allowed to go on Dead Man's Island at all. I can imagine. Um, so nobody should be going out there. Um, so we found this this skull. We also found some bones, some human bones as well. And uh, in the in the intertidal zones, we, we we dug a little hole. We put them in there. Called the police. Took a GPS. Called the police. Police came out and took them. Took them away. And um, they took them because there was an ongoing case in the area. Um, they had to out, uh, rule out the fact that they, you know they might have been more modern. It was fairly obvious they weren't. They were quite old. And um, so, in the meantime, I was contacted by a university in Melbourne in Australia because a lady who is uh, her speciality is barnacle colonization of human remains, and she wanted to study them further. Which made me wonder what was going to happen. He'd now become known as Fred. What was going to happen to Fred once oh, the checks? Yeah, it felt right to give him a name. Yeah, um, they radiocarbon dated him. He he's radiocarbon dated to around 200, 250 years ago, which puts him in the right time frame for the prison ships. So it's likely he came from a quarantine ship or a prison ship. Um, and I, I said, "What are you going to do with him?" And they said, "Well, he'll, it'll be incinerated." So I looked into it and I managed to get permission from the coroner and permission from the police to um, keep him and to have him study in Australia. Lockdown came, we couldn't get him off to Australia. And then Turi King, who is the person who genetically identified Richard III, um, she works up at Leicester. She contacted me and said, I'd love to work on it. Can I join in as well? And I was oh like, yes, that'd be amazing. Um, so she has got him up there. In the meantime, we have to, she's got together an incredible group of women scientists who are going to look into the stable isotopes. There's going to be a facial reconstruction. The woman who facially reconstructed Richard III, too, is doing her genetic analysis, which might even lead to us tracking down um, living relatives. Oh, my wow. goodness. Um, wow. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine <laughs> if he is actually called Fred as well? Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> Um, so we've decided Fred is going to, it's, it, it make, it's morally right for him to stay in this country and not to travel. Okay. Uh, you tend not to, I didn't realise all of this, but you tend not to ship human remains unless you absolutely have to, unless there's somebody in the country who can't do whatever it is. But we have people here. It seems right for him to be here. When, <sighs> he is, um, when he's finished with, when he's all done, I, I want to get him buried properly have a decent I think he deserves that so yes so at the moment he's up in Leicester he's with Turi um actually I think he might actually be with can't remember who he's with at the moment he's don't think he is with Turi anyway he's having all sorts done to him we're going to have all sorts learn hopefully all sorts about him my goodness what unbelievable what a great update as well wow I'm because we've been following in this little story of the skull for a while so it's lovely to hear the latest and and uh, oh my goodness I mean that's really exciting exciting. just as the you know uh, on a different day a different area that could have been completely missed and you finding that has suddenly you know escalated this far it's fantastic is it the full skull like how much of it visually it's the full skull it's the full skull without the lower jaw 
Okay, wow. Jaw, that's that's gone. But I also found the legs and the arms and oh. a few other bits and pieces. So there's quite a bit of him. Um, if it is all from the same person. So we're waiting to find out. Yeah, could be several oh, people. Goodness. How yeah. exciting. And oh. um, if there's any of our listeners thinking, oh my God, I just need to start mudlarking immediately. <laughs> um, you mentioned a license at the beginning. Could you talk a little bit about that and about how someone would acquire one? Yeah, it's really important to mudlark responsibly. Like I said, uh, you need a, a license to mudlark um, legally. You get those from the Port of London Authority. You can get them online if you just Google online. Uh, I think they're about £90 now, but that's for three years, which I don't think that's that bad. It's really I think good, that's very it? good value, it's actually. really good. Um, if you think how much it costs to go on the London Eye, it, it's pretty good value. Yeah. Um, you are then obliged to report anything of archaeological significance that's over 300 years old to the Portable Antiquities Scheme, which is an incredible project mm. run... Um, by the British part of the British Museum, and they record all the objects that are found, sort of ownerless objects that are found in fields and, and gardens and beaches and rivers. And they've recorded about well over a million and a half, I think, objects now, which is amazing. You know, it's recording our history. It's our, it's our, uh, it's really important. There is a record of what's being found. If you're coming from abroad, you need to have a permit to take things out of the country. This is our heritage after all, you know, we need to, it needs to be recorded. It needs to sometimes stay in the, in the UK. Uh, if you find treasure, proper treasure, which is anything made of uh, precious metal, over 10% precious metal and over 300 years old, you have to by law report it to a coroner. I think it's within a week and then it goes through the whole coroner's process. Um, it's offered to museums. They can buy it if they want to. If nobody wants it, then you can get it back. If they want to buy it, you get half the value, which is known as the finder's fee, or you can donate it uh, to whoever wants it. Uh, the other half uh, goes to the landowner, which is the PLA, and the PLA always donate their half um, to the museum that wants whatever it is. Uh, but to be, to be honest, uh, museums rarely want things. Uh, it has to be really special for them to want it. Mm. Amazing. And and um, you mentioned that, um, you know, you can find artefacts all the way back to sort of Roman times. And of course, that is one of the things that was found in the British Museum. We have things like the Battersea Shield, which was found by Battersea Bridge. And, and so there are things like that that are incredibly important for, you know, London's well, and Britain's history that are recorded by the Portable Antiquities Scheme and it's quite interesting because I remember chatting to a friend of mine who used to work for uh, well in Heritage and was did lots of stuff with them and and she said to me that when this came in which I think was the 50s am I right in saying it was the 50s whenever it came in but before then people would just find stuff and keep it and she said that once the scheme came in we learned a lot more about previous you know well previous people in history because there'd be things found randomly in fields and you'd find that you could trace across the countryside you know finds like pins or brooches and you could see where the people would be walking on a regular basis and where they you know where they would all kind of congregate because that was where you would find loads of these little things it's a really important scheme um it is yeah it, it's telling us a huge amount. I mean, up until the 1950s, archaeologists weren't really interested in um, in objects that were found in areas. The, the, the river is just like a big washing machine. It's just there's no layers. There's really nothing to it's all in there together. 
Um, and, and archaeologists weren't really interested in that. They were looking for things that were found in layers that could tell them something about the dates and tell them something about all of that. And it really was a man called Ivan Hume who came along. <coughs> he was the person who made um, these, these, these individual finds that weren't connected with anything in, in particular the, that made them important. Um, I think the portable antiquity scheme came in in the 90s, actually. It's not been around that long. Oh, okay. um, it might, yeah, it might even be not. I, I should look that up, actually, how long it's been around. But it hasn't it been around that long. It was some something or other. I, I've got the 50s in my head yeah. after the war, but I can't I'll, I'll have a little look. There was a big shift, I think, in archaeology after the war. But, you know, more and more stuff's being found because so many people have middle sticks and things now. You know, that's yeah. really, really changed things that are being found, which is why the portable antiquity scheme is so important because so much is being found. Hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a little um, exhibition in the Tate Modern at the moment. It takes over just uh, one room and it's um, a huge cabinet and you can open all the drawers and find all sorts of different things that have been found on the riverbed. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't know about that. <laughs> yeah, it's been there for at least a month, I'd say. And every time I walk through it, you know, there are so many people interested. It's really... Yes capturing their imagination yes we did a mudlarking exhibition at southwark cathedral actually last year and it was we had i think fifty thousand people through the door to look at it um was the time. it was fantastic it was really oh, fascinating um and a mudlarking day and we're having another mudlarking day actually this year um oh. and so that's going to be at southwark cathedral so there's going to be all sorts going on. And, uh, and is yeah. that a day when they'll be able to go down to the foreshore with mudlarkers and have a little look and, and that kind of thing? Or is it more about learning not, about? Yeah, it's going to be more about learning, but not on that day because the people who would take them down will be in, involved in the day, obviously. But I think are do, Southwark Cathedral are doing some walks again this year. Wonderful. Um, but apart from that, there's the Thames Discovery. If anyone does want to sort of go down on a, a guided walk there's very few people who are allowed to do guided walks on the actual foreshore uh you need they need permission mm-hmm. so the two people two organizations pretty much the only organizations that have permission are thames discovery and thames explorer trust and you don't need a permit if you go with them you can use their permit you can't take things off the foreshore unless mm-hmm. you've got a, for, uh, mm-hmm. a permit but you can go down with them and do it and it's a great way because they're they're all non-profit organizations so um you know your money goes back into the great work that they're doing on the river fantastic brilliant oh, i think we should do that as one of our outings Alex, i think we should do you know, do you know when the mudlarking day year. is um it is in june and i couldn't tell you the exact day but it's going to be in june okay amazing brilliant. we'll, 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 we'll find out that. we'll yeah. let our listeners out well laura thank you so much for coming along and chatting to us i mean we could talk to you for hours um but you know <laughs> we, uh, we we mustn't take up too much of your time but thank you so so much and and where can people find your books if they want to find out more uh, my books are available in all bookshops. Please try and shop independently. Um, and the evil Amazon, if you must shop there. Um, <laughs> yeah, you can, get, you can get them anywhere. Anywhere you can buy a book, you'll be able to get it. So, so the first them. one is just simply called Mudlark. I think in America, it's got a slightly different title, hasn't it? In America, it's just called Mudlark. But Mudlark. you can get it in America. It's published in America. Um, it's just called Mudlark. And in the UK, it's called Mudlarking. You can also get it in Australia and New Zealand and Canada. Uh, it's being translated into Chinese and Spanish, oh. actually. So uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to finding out what mudlarking is in Chinese. Um, I'm doing a talk uh, for Deaf Awareness Week, actually. Um, so it's going to be signed. So if anybody has hearing issues, then they are welcome to come along to that at Southwark Cathedral. Fantastic. Um, that's coming up in May. 
my second book is called A Field Guide to Larking, and that tells you everything you need to know to start larking, mudlarking, uh, beachcombing, field walking, or even just looking around your house and garden. Fantastic. Brilliant. And people can find you on social media as well, where you don't really have many followers, do you? It's only about 108,000. Uh, <laughs> only 108,000. Only a casual on Instagram. 100,000 now, actually. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as at London Mudlark. On Instagram, I'm at London.mudlark. So, yeah, I post my clients there quite regularly. And do you know oh, what, Laura, you, what, thank you. what I love you often post is you post videos of you kind of going in, zooming into something, and you say, can you find it before I do? I never managed to see it, never. <laughs> and it's not until you literally pick it up, they're like, there it is! <laughs> you know, it, I think it's something about the camera, actually, because sometimes it confuses me. And then all of a sudden, my great big hand comes in to pick up a tiny <laughs> thing, and I think I'm looking at it. It confuses me as well. It's it's more a lot more difficult to spot the find on a camera than it is uh, in real life. But then the minute you pick it up, I'm like, of course it's a coin. And I just couldn't see it before then. But anyway. Oh, Laura, thank you so, so much for coming along. We really appreciate your time. Our listeners, uh, really I know do. that we do have some uh, some mudlarkers who listen, actually. And I know um, uh, that quite a few people ha- were asking if we could do some stuff on mudlarking. So I said, I think, oh. I think we might have somebody we can chat to. So uh, thank you so much. We really, really appreciate it. Um, You're welcome. And we will hopefully chat to you again in the future. Yes, yes, stay in touch, stay in touch. Thank you so, <laughs> Thank you so much, Lara, it's brilliant. Okay, bye. Wow, what an absolute treat. Oh, I love Lara so, so much. What, what a wonderful woman. Yeah, I mean, that was that that was fantastic. I mean, we've had some great guests on um, and I've been really looking forward to having Lara on. She said a while ago she'd, she'd come on the podcast. So um, what a treat. I mean, I, I know that we talked about her book on there. I've read it, I bought it for my mum for Christmas a couple of years ago. Um, have you read it, Em? I've read bits of it. I do have it, but it is such a great read. It's just terrible. It is such a great read. It really is. Um, I highly recommend it. it. The the way that she, you know, she. I mean, I think you got that in that interview that she talks about her finds and just I think being a mudlarker and what it brings to her with such kind of love and and um, you know real feeling that I think that comes across in the book as well and the stories in there are, are just fascinating so um it, it's, mm. it's it's a fabulous read i really recommend it um yeah she's very open isn't she like you know the the conversation about her going down there for meditational purposes as well yeah. i thought it was um yeah really lovely yeah, yeah it was great talking to her thank you lara thanks lara <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by shopify whether you're selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Podcast pedestal. So uh, it's, we have to pick our podcast pedestal. So our, our kind of top bits of what Lara spoke about. Now, not, neither of us were presenting this week, so it's going to be a fight as to who gets to pick first. <laughs> oh, yes, that's true, actually. I don't think I know what I want to pick yet, so do you know? Well, in my mind, I have to say, something that just keeps on going round is something that you said when she was talking about the shoe, and that was that you are the first person to touch it since that person who owned it touched it. And I just think that's... That would be possibly what but, I would have gone for as well. <laughs> but I 
think do I want to go for the shoe? I'm going to have to go for the skull. The skull. Ooh. The skull, because her find suddenly had this kind of, you know, knock-on effect. You know, the, Fred was nearly off it, to Australia. You know, there was a moment where he was going to be on a plane yeah. going to Oz. Um, <laughs> he's having scans, you know, the same woman who uh, looked at um, the the bones of King Richard III is also analysing Fred. Yeah. So I think it's got to be the skull. Okay, okay. Well, I, I, I'm then going to steal the shoe because that... Now, I, I've read about the shoe before and I can't remember if it's in Lara's book or I've read it on... Uh, that she's spoken in an interview. I can't remember where I've read it now. But um, it, for me, it is that very visceral thing about it being something that somebody lost. And I mean, I think she said in there, people th- throw stuff in, they drop stuff in. Um, you can imagine there's a whole heap of stuff in there that people have accidentally dropped over the side and gone, oh no, no, I didn't mean to drop that. You know, that kind of thing. And you'll never get that back. But then the next person to touch it could be five, six, seven hundred years down the line. And the shoe, that that Tudor shoe, 500 years old. Young girl's shoe, little yeah, shoe. Yeah, and I think she's done a, a, put a photo of it before. And you've got the, you've got the indentations of the toe. And, you know, oh. we, we've all got shoes, haven't we, that we love and we wear. And if, if you put someone else's shoe on that they've loved and worn, it feels weird because, you know, it's the indentation of their foot. And that's quite a personal thing. You're not going to get that from anything mm. else. So the mm. fact that 500 years later, Lara is pulling out of the mud this Tudor shoe that has the indentation of this child's foot in it, mm. for me, it's that. Very beautifully put, Alex. I almost want to vote for you myself. But I'm not going to because I think the skull will absolutely (laughs) trump this. (laughs) Um, No, I mean, there were so many things that we could have picked. So many things. But there we go. I I was tempted with the the typeface as well because that's one of the stories that's always always sort of stuck in my head. But I think the the, the Mm. visceral nature of the shoe is, is, you know, that very kind of personal, physical, human element to it. It's lovely. Yes. Well, there we are, everybody. You've got your two picks. Are you going to go with a skull or are you going to go with a little shoe? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we don't have to spin the wheel this week because we are keeping the one that we did last week. So it'll be Barbara Hepworth uh, linked to... Dame Barbara. Dame Barbara. Dame Babs. Love a bit of Babs. Dame Babs. So I'm looking forward to that next week. Um, And then I will tell you the story about... My, my arty awakening in the garden at her house in oh, yes. Cornwall. Oh, um, God, yeah. People are on the edge of their seat for this, Alex. <laughs> They're going to have to wait another week. I know. Um, <laughs> so that is it for this week. Thank you all so much for coming and listening. Really hope you enjoyed that fantastic interview with Lara. Um, go and enter the competitions. We uh, can't wait to um, be handing out prizes to people. And yeah. we will see you next week for a bit Barbara Hepworth. See you next week, everybody. Thanks again, Lara. Bye.